Welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. This bonus episode is from the 12-part Genetics Shambles video series, which you can catch live every fortnight at 8.30pm from the 1st of July on the Cosmic Shambles Network. It's a wide-ranging series of conversations and discussions about the past, present and future of genetics with some of the world leaders in the field. It's hosted by Robin Ince in association with the Genetics Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. You can watch new live stream episodes first at cosmicshambles.com slash geneticsshambles or youtube.com slash cosmicshambles. Or just catch up here with a podcast edition one week later on Genetics Unzipped. Enjoy. It's amazing that explaining life's immense diversity All comes down to some genetics and some biochemistry And life on Earth is just one family And what's true for you is true for all biology Hello, welcome to Genetic Shambles. As uh, as usual, it is uh, Wednesday evening. We're doing this fortnightly uh, Genetic Shambles, which we are doing in uh, in unison with uh, Cosmic Shambles, which is kind of one of the things that I do with my friend Trent Burton, who is uh, producing tonight. And we're also doing this uh, with the Genetic Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. You can see all of the past episodes up on our YouTube channel, or also go to Cosmic Shambles, uh, and you will find the episodes there. You can also get audio versions just normal audio versions are up on the genetics unzipped site as well um so everything is still available we've had lots of conversations obviously we, we unsurprisingly started with covid19 and then we've had some very broad conversations about different ideas of genetics that's the aim of genetic shambles which is uh, just to give you because it is it is a field which changes at remarkable speed as, as we comment every single week if you find a book about genetics that was published in 2005 find a more recent one because things are changing apace and it is uh, it is fascinating. That doesn't mean you shouldn't read the book, but I'm just being just make sure that you'll need footnotes. There will definitely need to be footnotes. Uh, and uh, also, if you have questions today, uh, then please do just if you go onto our feed, you are able to ask us questions and uh, I will I won't be able to answer them because I have no level of expertise in anything that I do. I'm a professional idiot, but we have three people who do understand what we're going to be talking about today and uh, today we're going to be in particular talking uh, about genetics and uh, the changing understanding of cancer the changing possible treatments of, of cancer via uh, genetics and general understanding through that route and also we'll be looking at some other things as well so we are joined today by three fantastic guests oh, who Dr. are Dr. Kat Arnie she is the host of Genetics Unzip podcast which I mentioned already and uh, she has a new book out Rebel Cell Cancer Evolution and the Science of Life Life. We have Dr. Life. Mariam, Mariam Jani, who is Clinical Associate Professor in the Research Department of Oncology at uh, UCL University College London. And, and we, we have, have Dr. Samara Turlidge, Turlidge, who is of trans now this is always i love these things translational studies into melanoma and kidney cancer and a group leader at the francis crick institute and as you may well know uh we've had uh, a few people in the past on from francis crick as well and a few people from ucl so hello everyone hello hello um, hello start off very uh i suppose with definitions because that is what uh very often there are things which are strewn around uh the media and books and we don't necessarily and i'll start with you cat uh if that's okay which is basically to get a definition of what 
cancer is because i think some people would think that you know that there's this thing it's just called cancer it's this singular thing which may well occur in different parts of the body etc so can you give us a definition of what what should we understand when we hear what is cancer so 12 years working at Cancer Research UK in the science communication team and often I'd have to write the kind of the what is cancer thing and we'd always start off by typing this sentence like cancer starts when a cell picks up genetic changes mutations so changes in its DNA and multiplies out of control so in that case you sort of cells multiplying out of control forming a tumor which is like a solid cancer or in the case of blood cancers kind of filling up the blood with cancer cells. So it's this idea of cells picking up changes and then multiplying out of control. And in the case of solid cancers, you can sort of define them by whether they're staying in one place, just as a kind of a, a lump, or if they're starting to break away, travel outside the tissue where they started and travel around the body. And we call this process cancer and I'm there are various clinical definitions and there's many many types of cancer depending as you say where in the body it arises but it's this idea of a process of kind of normal cells that are normally doing their thing multiplying when they should dying when they should doing their jobs suddenly not doing what they're meant to do and starting to grow aberrantly and out of control and ultimately if they're unchecked spreading through the body and causing problems. And then ultimately, if they if they are unchecked and cause serious problems, they can can lead to death if they have spread throughout the body. So that's sort of the the sort of science from a cellular point of view. And I and I guess uh, Mariam and, and Samra can talk a bit more about the clinical side of things. Well, actually, this is one thing I, I, I want to know, Mariam, if I'll, I'll start with you if that's okay, which is um, about uh, the different rates of mutation mutation in cancer. Quite a few of the the illnesses we've talked about uh, on this show before. Uh, it's th there are reasonably specific ways that you can understand the rate of mutation. But as far as I can gather, for th there is something uh, about this what you might consider to be instability. What is it about cancer genetically which which uh, causes this situation? Situation. Um, so if you look across the spectrum of cancers be it solid or blood cancers, as Kat said, um, there can be different rates of mutation, so the frequency at which a mutation occurs. And as Kat says, the premise is um, inherited cancers, if you put them to one side, um, cancers are in the, in the main acquired. So in the life history of any human being, you're born and throughout your throughout your lifetime, you can acquire genetic abnormalities. We call these mutations, if you like. Um, and this can be the result of what we call mutagens or triggers that um, are known or predicted to cause cancer. So these might be things in your lifestyle like smoking, diet, weight. Um, it could be uh, something to do with the environment, exposure to, say, ultraviolet light, certain chemicals and so on. But either way, the, the idea is that throughout the life history, you acquire these genetic abnormalities. And it's this, this idea of an accumulation of genetic abnormalities that results in a normal cell going rogue and developing the ability to become a cancerous cell. And when you look across the different tumor types, they have different um, rates of mutation. So for example, lung cancer, um, colorectal cancers, uh, cancers of the skin, melanoma have very high frequencies of mutation. If you take um, a section of the genome and you look at how many abnormal mutations have occurred that's the way in which you can measure the the rate of mutations compare that to other tumor types some of the leukemias 
um, say, thyroid cancer, bladder cancer. So there's a real spectrum of mutation rates, which is which is what you've asked. Um, and there's this theory of the mutator uh, phenotype. So perhaps some of those tumors that acquire or, uh, or the cancer cells that have genetic abnormalities in genes that are involved in repairing damage to the DNA. So they are predicted and more likely to cause an unstable genome. So genomic instability that you referred to. And the more unstable the genome is, the more likely it may be that there is a higher rate of acquiring these mutations. Um, so I think it's about the tumour of origin, the organ from which it originates. There's something about that when you look across the spectrum, but also about the type of mutations that occur, whether they involve those genes that are involved in um, repairing damage to the DNA. So I think it's a mixture, of, but, there, but there certainly is variation across the different tumour types. Thank you. Um, Samara, I, I wondered how much has changed in terms of our understanding. Now we are able to sequence a genome. And, and of course, this this worries some people because it's as if you are in a Philip K. Dick novel that you will find out mm -hmm. you have this particular uh, gene and that's it now, as opposed to, as, as we seem to find out, it gets messier and messier. Nature, nurture, probability. How much has, has changed in terms of our being able to understand, for instance, someone who is at risk and how much then how much control has genetics changed the possibility of how we can learn something about ourselves and then find our ways to try and evade what sometimes people might consider almost to have been to have been a destiny mm. well um i mean uh, arguably the last decade or two have really been the the golden age of cancer genetics you know, we really demystified what the cancer genome um, encodes. Um, and, and that's really come about as a result of next generation sequencing technologies. So as you know, for the Human Genome Project, it took over a decade, um, you know, hundreds of millions um, and, and many different labs working on this just to get a, a single readout of a single genome. Um, and since then, uh, again, thanks to uh, technology advances, uh, we've been able to get the thousands of cancer genomes. Um, so that's really given us an insight into what uh, the mutational landscape is um, and what the processes are that, that drive that. Some of it was very intuitive, so finding out that uh, lung cancers are characterized by this you know, signature of, of tobacco exposure and majority of mutations are uh, caused by that or in skin cancer sunlight, but nevertheless, it was really profound to actually um, uh, have that uh, revealed uh, to, to that degree. I think it's important to note that probably what we've come to appreciate the most is that majority of these mutations that are acquired by cancers are not doing anything at all. Um, they're, they're hitchhikers, uh, you know, they're there as a footprint of whatever mutational process uh, is at play. So um, in, especially in the cancer treat, um, smoking-induced lung cancer or melanoma, uh, something in the region of 95% of those mutations are not doing anything. So uh, some melanomas might have around 50,000, 100,000 mutations in the genome, but only around five of those uh, are really doing anything. So when we focus on this idea of a mutation rate, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a little bit misguided. Um, because uh, the, the mutations per se um, are not what, what gives the, the cancer 
the trades that uh, acquire um, it's the adaptation um, that those cancers, uh, those cancer mutations can can afford, um, and and therefore what we really look for are those mutations that are frequently selected. Um, so uh, if we see mutations um, that keep appearing sort of against all the odds um, in the different cancer types in certain genes, we know that those are important because. Um, they would have been selected for because they afford the tumour um, some way of either escaping death um, or invading, surviving in the circulation, uh, invading other tissues, metastasizing, etc. And that's really what we've found out over the last 20 years. What are those important cancer genes? How can we target them with drugs and so on? I want to sort of, sort of jump, jump in there and, and say, like, it's really great that we're starting to understand this. And it's important to see cancer as an evolutionary process. And I go into it in, in a lot of detail in my new book about it's not just about the mutations. We've got so fixated now that we can look at thousands and thousands of cancer genomes in incredible detail and read the whole genome and see every single mutation. We've become fixated on you know, almost generating this shopping list of mutations in every cancer that we can find. But when you actually start to look at normal tissue, by the time you get to middle age, your normal tissue is peppered with mutations that if you found them in a cancer, you'd say, oh, that's a, a cancer gene, a cancer mutation. So it's much more to a cancer than just the mutations. And it's really important what Samra said, this is an evolutionary process. So evolution doesn't you know, it's not about the genes. It's about what we call the phenotype. It's about how you come out and how you behave and the advantage your genes give you in the environment that you're in. And the environment of your body doesn't stay the same throughout your lifetime. It changes as we age. It changes when we're exposed to different things. It changes when we experience things like inflammation. So, you know, it's do those genetic changes that are in these cells make them more fit in the environment they find themselves in. And because cancers have, like Mariam said, this kind of mutator phenotype, they're constantly like mixing up their genomes and, and trying to do things to survive. They've, they've got a lot of, uh, I, I call it like a dumpster fire of evolution going on. They're generating a lot of changes. Something in there is going to have an advantage in the environment it finds itself in. So it's not just about the genetic changes, the mutations. It's about the advantage that it gives those cells over the cells around them and in the tissue that they find themselves in and also kind of in in the environment that they start to create as well mariam did you i i, 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 I couldn't, see, couldn't see if you had your hand up did you want to add something as well I, I, I was just going to i was just going to add that um i completely agree with cat it certainly isn't about just the or what sam referred to as the genetic landscape and i'm sure we'll come on to the idea of the tumor microenvironment and certainly evolution in fact one of the interesting things, some would say that in the tumours where there's a very high rate of mutations, high frequency of mutations, that in itself is a signal that indicates um, evolution because there's evidence of a positive selection. There's evidence of perhaps more of a fruitful evolutionary landscape or some evidence of evolutionary trajectories. So there is a reason why the mutation rate is higher in some tumours versus other, and we do see that. So we, we talk about the concept of tumour heterogeneity within a tumour mass, that no two parts of a, a tumour mass are the same, that there are these isolated populations of cancer cells that are all genomically related, but behave differently because they acquire different 
genomic properties. Um, so the mutation rate does also give you some clue that evolution is at play. I wanted to ask both Mariam and, and, and Samara, if, if I can ask you both. I, I'm interested to know what, and Samara, you kind of talked a little bit about this, but the change. So someone 30 years ago who was coming to you, and you can give me any example that you wish. That I, I would like to know some of the different ways that people might now have both an understanding of their cancer and, the, and how much the possibilities mm. of treatment may well be changing from, say, 1990 to someone in 2020. What kind of differences are you seeing? If we can start with you, Samra. Sure. Yeah, I, I think melanoma is actually a very elegant example of this and a really powerful example of how knowledge has transformed treatment. Um, so, in fact, at the start of my career in oncology, which was around 15 years ago, um, patients coming along to our clinic with a diagnosis of melanoma that had spread to elsewhere in the body. So just to be covered early on the skin and resected by a surgeon, 90% of those patients are cured. But the patients that I was seeing as an oncologist were those um, where their melanoma had either come back following surgery um, or it had spread to other parts of the body. Very commonly, it would be liver or lung or brain. Um, and, and the essence of the conversations I was having with those patients was was palliative. Um, I was really rather hard for young in their 20s, 30s, 40s, um, and otherwise healthy. Uh, and uh, we didn't have anything to offer them because conventional cancer therapies, such as chemotherapy, radiotherapy, all the immunotherapies from the sort of past era were completely ineffective. Um, and you'd find that some people would still opt to have one of those treatments in spite of their futility. And you would find that some, sometimes we would agree to give them as well. And I think that is really underpinned by the, the despair of the situation and the desire to do something. In 2005, um, thanks to uh, these efforts to uh, try, and try and portray the molecular landscape, the genetic landscape, a discovery was made that uh, a particular gene called BRAF um, is mutated uh, in around 50% of all melanomas. What that gene does is encodes for a protein um, which is responsible for sending a signal to the heart of the cell, to the nucleus, to tell it to divide. Um, and what was found out quite rapidly following the finding of the mutation is that um, the, the mutation itself results in a 600-fold activation of that signal. So you can imagine that this is a sort of a cell on steroids now. You know, nothing, nothing can stop it from dividing because it has this persistent signal um, that completely ignores any other cues from the environment. To Kat's point earlier, these cells are rogue. Um, they, they don't conform to any, um, any, any usual um, sense of, of control of cell growth. But the fact that these cells so particularly relied on this mutation and this pathway also revealed an Achilles heel for them because they were so profoundly reliant on this. Um, the, the, the drugs that were very, very quickly, actually within three or four years, designed to block that particular pathway really resulted in a profound change of the behavior of these um, melanomas. So this is now we're talking around 2010. So 2005, discovery of the mutation. Uh, 2010, it had become a standard of care uh, treatment, a blockade of this pathway. Um, remember, it's only in 50% of the patients, so the other 50% don't really have a genetic change that we could target. 
Um, and then subsequent to that, and uh, you know, I'm sure we'll come back to talk about this, um, you will know that the Nobel um, Prize last year went to uh, three scientists for discovery of um, a really fundamental uh, way in which uh, cancers impact the immune system, which then facilitated development of a new generation of immunotherapies. And as it happens, um, melanomas respond profoundly to this new generation of immunotherapy and actually durably so as well. Um, it's very hard to talk about cure because our patients will need to live a normal life and die of another cause. But we're now looking at a good proportion of melanoma patients who are alive five years after receiving immunotherapy treatment. And just to give you a, a comparison, uh, in 2005, when I started out in this field, their survival on average would have been six months. The survival now is five years and, and, and beyond. So the conversations that I'm having with my patients these days is really about the many choices of treatment that we've got. What sequence should we give them in? What, what is more convenient for the patient? Um, uh, what is important for them in terms of their lifestyle and so on? Um, and this really come about uh, through two things. One is the, the understanding of cancer genetics, cancer genomics, and the subsequent development of drugs that target these genetic changes. And the second, which is really applicable across many different cancer types now is the development of modern immunotherapies that can really harness the immune system to recognize and and, and kill cancer cells. Uh, thank you very much. Marion, would you, would you like to... I, uh... I don't have, um, in contrast to Samra's story, I don't, I don't really have um, such a positive outcome to share. In lung cancer, despite 20, 30 years of really quite robust clinical and uh, basic scientific research, we still see that patients present with quite advanced disease in lung cancer. And often that's because uh, the way in which the disease presents is not as visible potentially as, say, melanoma. It's a cough. Um, often these are patients who might be stoical or perhaps um, think that it may be a chest infection or something like that. But, but on the whole, or even in the context of never smokers, We've got a, a good number of patients who present with lung cancer but have never smoked. And often there is this, this thought that if you don't smoke, why would you develop lung cancer? And it is a real entity. And, a, and there are patients that we see like that in clinic every week. Um, so in lung cancer, again, this idea of um, next generation sequencing has allowed us to identify drivers or genetic drivers of disease and um, for example a gene called EGFR but in the Caucasian population this is only prevalent around 10 percent and some of the other genetic abnormalities that we believe drive um, lung cancer are present say one to three percent of the general population who develop the disease so it's a small, as opposed to patients with BRAF and melanoma, it's a smaller population that we can offer these targeted therapies inhibiting the activity or the signaling of these genes in cancer cells. But where we can offer it, we certainly have seen that that has increased and improved the clinical outcome and overall survival. But we still rely on chemotherapy. So just like in Samra's um, field, we also have seen a real shift in the treatment paradigm by the by being able to offer our patients immunotherapy and the mechanisms are the same some tumors are more immunogenic than others and more responsive and we certainly are seeing um, good response in in the patients diagnosed with lung cancer so it's a slightly different story 
Um, but we are finding ways to leverage the the heterogeneity or the genetic landscape, knowing that there's real good evidence of um, active tumor evolution in lung cancer to try and offer our patients um, novel therapies. And that's something we might come on to, but we know that the more heterogeneous the tumor is, the more likely there are to um, be abnormal antigens or proteins presented on these cancer cells, the increased chance that a, the, the immune system might recognize these as abnormal or foreign. And so actually immunotherapy might be able to leverage heterogeneity for that. And, and the concept of developing um, what autologous T-cell therapies, where you can take the patient's immune cells that are predicted to react against these abnormal proteins sitting on the cancer cells, and actually reinfuse them back to back in the patient. Once you've introduced a genomics arm, a, an ex vivo, in, it, there's lots of technologies that this involves, and we can go into detail if that's of interest. But the heterogeneity of cancers is allowing us to offer our patients novel therapies. So evolution, albeit um, complicates um, the way we can treat our patients, um, it, it, is, it is offering us novel avenues for therapies. I wanted to sort of build on that because I think it'll matter because I think if any conversation about this idea of molecular targeted therapies for cancer, and if we don't mention a drug called Gleevec, I think we're being remiss here, which is I think the, the absolute poster child for this kind of approach. So Gleevec is a drug that's for a certain type of leukemia, and it targets a very specific genetic change that drives the leukemia. You have two genes that normally aren't together, and, and there's a genetic change that kind of cuts and pastes them together, and they make this rogue molecule that drives the leukemia cells. And this was the first, the Gleevec was the drug designed to lock into that faulty molecule. And it absolutely transformed the outcome from this cancer. And, um, and it was kind of the first of these really molecularly targeted drugs designed to lock on to a faulty targeted cancer cells. And that did trigger this whole idea and, and uh, what Samra's talked about, the BRAF inhibitors and the, the drugs that target the faulty mutations in lung cancer that Marion mentioned. We sort of had this idea that if we could just find the mutations and just get the drugs, then that would solve the problem. But as we've seen, every cancer is a patchwork of mutations. It's little groups of cells. This heterogeneity means that even by the time a tumor has grown to a certain size, there's a good chance that there will be a patch of cells in there that is resistant to the treatment that you throw at them. And again, this is an evolving system. You're actually adding a selective pressure. So you're killing all the cells that are sensitive to that drug, but you're actually selecting for the cells that are resistant to it. So we've sort of, within the span of about 20 years, gone from this idea that if we can just find the mutations and just find the drugs, we'll treat cancer to like, we've tried it. Why are these cancers coming back? And now we're like, oh, we really have to understand the evolution. We have to understand the trajectories that these cancers are on. How are they evolving resistance? What's the mechanism? How kind of the more heterogeneous a cancer is, the more likely it is to be targeted by the immune system. How do we bring that in? So we've seen almost the sort of full circle of a revolution in genetics and then bringing back kind of the, the evolutionary ideas to it. So, Kat, if I can add to that, I, I think there are some... Um, you know, relatively simple messages within this um, as well. So, um, yes, it, you know, once you have this uh, repertoire of mutations, uh, it's very easy to see how when you add the therapy on and you provide the selective pressure, you kill off the sensitive cells, the resistant cells. See 
second is that the population size really matters. And I think you've alluded to that. Um, so I would have predicted that when we started using BRAF inhibitors in the context of um, adjuvant therapy, so that's really as a, as a preventative treatment for patients who had their uh, melanoma removed, um, there was a risk that there might be some cells that are still hanging around. We know that about 50% of those patients are, are deemed relapsed. If we give them BRAF inhibitors uh, in this kind of preventative way, for a year, I would have thought that this selective pressure would have still applied. But in fact, what we're seeing now with five years follow-up um, is that these patients remain free of disease, which tells us that even if resistant mutations are present, but the number of cancer cells, the, you know, the, the, the size of the overall population is very small, you can still go for cure. The problem with the targeted therapies that we've used to date, whether it be in lung cancer or melanoma or colon cancer, is we always using them at a point where these tumors have got hundreds of millions of cells. Therefore, any permutation of resistance mutations is present. It's very clear that resistance will emerge. Um, so we, we need to think about the, the framework where the, uh, the, the population size is there, the, some measure of selective pressure is there, um, and then the likelihood, if you like a mathematical equation, um, that, that something will emerge given all these different parameters. I mean, what you're really there is an extinction event. And I thought that's a bit about, again, what I talk about in the book, I'm talking about these ideas of like seeing cancer almost like a species in a landscape, in, a, in an e ecosystem. And when species go extinct, we're very good at driving species extinct. You know, there's different things that happen. So maybe you've got like a really bad winter and you've got a disease and you've got a shrinking habitat. There's all these pressures that act upon it until the population is so small that it collapses. There's just not enough diversity to keep going and not enough members of the species to keep going. So I think that's a really interesting idea about how do we treat cancer by thinking about how to bring about extinction events rather than just like, you know, throw a drug at it and, and try and get rid of all the cells. It's, it's a really exciting idea. I, I love it. And it's good to hear that you're getting some results from that kind of approach. I think the, the science, sorry to, sorry to I think the, interrupt, I think the science is there. We know that developing a cancer is equivalent to an evolutionary process. Um, and historically, if you think about pharmaceutical companies or drug development, um, there isn't a longitudinal or evolutionary concept at all in that development process. And I think that there's certainly a signs and evidence for that changing, but that's where we need to be heading. And this idea that, um, you know, we, we, we take a biopsy from a patient's cancer, we make a diagnosis and we do some genetic sequencing. We think this is the ideal treatment for this patient. And we know that no two patients, even with the same type of cancer, in any way that we can describe it identical, will not behave the same, either in their disease course or their response to treatment and, and even perhaps their outcome. So we need to think about this idea of actually tracking the disease. If you know it at diagnosis or whichever, whether it's early stage, late stage, when you give a treatment, you are just as, so you mentioned ecosystems, and if you think of a cancer as an evolutionary process, then all the terms that we use are um, akin to terms used in the study of ecology. So we, as you say, there are different populations of cell. We might nurture resistance, nurture sensitivity, depending on the treatment we offer. But you need to track how these tumors evolve. And um, Samra's practice, my practice, many of many of the oncologists um, 
that we work with are becoming increasingly accepting and familiar with the idea of you can't rely on an archaic or ancient old biopsy from a decade ago to make a decision on how to treat a patient, maybe after two or three lines of treatment. So that mentality is really um, is in place, and I think that's transformed the way we treat our patients. But there's a lot more we need to do to actually embed evolutionary principles in the way we, we manage cancer. I just quickly mention, which is uh, to say that uh, because in the last two of these we've done, in three minutes before the end of the show, uh, we would get 20 or 30 questions. If anyone has questions, anyone watching this now who would like to ask questions, get them in now because we have about 15 minutes left. And I don't, I know we've got a, we're going to do uh, an evolutionary one all over again because we've got 30 questions left from that. So, uh, and now, sorry, I'm sorry for, uh, I, I want to quickly deal with one more, and then I want to also get back to talking about the Tracer X study as well, uh, if, if, if we can. And uh, there's quite a few things, but one is we're talking here, there's, uh, this is a time of innovation, of course, for people with cancer and family, it's also a time of, of, of desperation. And there's a lot of language, as we see talking, talking now, where you it's very easy to become confused quite quickly. And I wanted to get advice from all three of you, really, on... I'm, I'm sure we all know people who perhaps have been uh, misled or spent money or have there are a lot of charlatans out there and a lot of if anyone who saw the documentary false hope will know there's there's a lot of people who can prey on people at their most desperate so i want to start with you cat first which was just what advice can you give to people in terms of how they are able to research sometimes what may well seem to them like an innovative cure or indeed, you know, the, the, the last hope. Um, how can we give people some of the tools to arm themselves against misinformation? Yeah, this, this stuff's always absolutely heartbreaking. When I was at Cancer Research UK, I was the person who dealt with a lot of the, um, the sort of the miracle cures, the alternative cancer therapies, the, uh, the frank charlatanism and the kind of the conspiracy sort of stuff. And so I was exposed to a lot of this and we'd get a lot of people saying, why aren't you investigating this? Why aren't you researching this? And, and I would look into every single one and I, you know, you think about, well, what is the evidence? And the problem is, is that, you know, as scientists and as, as medics, we always want to, um, you know, prove the evidence for what we've got. We know what good clinical trials look like. We know what good statistics look like. And we care about putting out reliable information, whether that's good or bad or like here are, here are the risks and the probabilities. And the problem is, is that um, people who are flogging miracle cures, they don't have that same kind of level of scruples. So they can say whatever they like about it. So it's very hard when you say to someone like, well, look for data. Look, and they go like, look, they've published all these stories. There's all these people. Um, and it used to infuriate me when we'd see, uh, you know, miracle cure stories in the papers. And then I would try and follow up. And, you know, six months later, you'd find out that the person who'd cured their cancer by uh, cutting sugar out of their diet had then passed away. But that story's never covered. So you would always want to tell people that, Really, it's almost like if it seems too good to be true, it is. Uh, and I've, I don't think I've seen a single situation of a, a treatment that has not come through kind of a legitimate research route, that has checked out to be a, a miracle cure. Um, I mean, it's interesting with the immunotherapies because for a long time people are like mm, this isn't going to work, and then they do look like amazing treatments, but they don't work for everyone. So it's when you have people saying, this works for everyone, uh, this works for a wide range of diseases, not just cancer, uh, this works for all cancer types, 
uh, not providing clinical data, not being prepared to publish their data. And when they do publish their data, you know, get someone who is a scientist or, or an organization like Cancer Research UK to scrutinize that for you. And I, I want to really push back on the idea that, you know, organizations like CR UK don't, they're not interested in this kind of alternative stuff. It's like if something worked, they'd be overjoyed. All of us would be overjoyed if any of these things actually worked because we have all lost people we love to cancer. We've all seen people going through it. So like, of course we all want, we all want this stuff to work. And when we look at it, it doesn't. So it's, I think the general rule is if it, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And, uh, you know, that's, it's really hard message to hear though. And it's a very hard message, hard message to tell anyone as well. Thank you. Thank you. Samara, I, I presume you may well have had uh, experiences again where people have, have said to you, why isn't this cure? Or I've read about this. Again, have, have you found there are any, you know, what are the, 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 the best routes in, in terms of uh, trying to explain to people basically what Kat was just saying as well? As well? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, it's really heartbreaking for having these conversations in the context of patients who have rats or of conventional options where we have evidence for effective treatments. You know, it's very unlikely that people are going down this route when we're when we have um, things to offer them that give them a good chance of getting on top of their disease or even um, curing their disease. Uh, it's often when they've been through a few lines of treatment uh, and we're having conversations about best supported care and dying that people reach reach for these um, uh, options. And uh, you know, some some of these practitioners are in the business of of selling selling hope when there isn't hope, and I can absolutely see why that's compelling. And I see it as as our duty to be very rigorous um, in uh, weighing up any uh, evidence that might associate with such treatment. And you know, we all comply with this. Um, we only ever recommend treatments that. Uh, stand up to the the, the uh, statistical testing that's you know required associated with the clinical trial, um, and if alternative therapies are are prepared to lend themselves to such process, um, and and have that weight of evidence, uh, then I think you know they they would stand stand the chance of being the 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 treatment landscape. Um, I, I think patients increasingly uh, appreciate the evidence based medicine, and I think we spend a long time. I'm talking to our patients about it, and I certainly am never dismissive about these options. Um, if people bring stuff with them, we go through it, um, and I always take time to explain why not, because I, I can completely sympathise um, why why they would want to try and pursue something else. Thank you, Thank you Marion. Would, would you like to add anything? Oh, I agree with I agree everything. with everything that's been said. I think most of us know our patients well, and um, when they approach us with these sorts of questions, um, we have to take the time to listen to them and to help them come to a decision. So I often say to patients that I don't dictate what you do, your treatment or your decisions, but that we can decide together and to try and give them the information that they need. And I agree with Samra. We are increasingly, as part of our management and treatment of patients, talking about the chances of survival, prognosis, the ch chances of responding to a particular treatment. So I think we then bring in the need for clinical trials, the need for evidence, so that perhaps you can make it clear that others that don't stand up to or don't meet those standards may not be reliable. 
Um, we've we've a had a lot of uh, audience questions. Uh, we've got a lot more actually just come in now. Um, but I, a quick one. This is from LJ, who would like to know, um, you've spoken about external factors being an influence, but are there some cancers that are more predetermined than others by our gene stroke heredity? So uh, I don't know who would like to. Uh, Samra, can I, can I throw that to you? Sure. Depending on the cancer type, um, there is always a proportion of, of cancers uh, that will be um, enriched in, in um, would be breast cancers and ovarian cancer and a gene called uh, BRCA gene. Um, and, you know, many people will be aware of the stories of, um, of people who have ended up having preventative mastectomies um, in order to, to reduce their risk of breast cancer if they've inherited this kind of gene. Uh, but we, we also know that there is probably a much more subtle effect um, from the genetic um, variation that we've inherited from, from our parents that doesn't really come through in, in the sort of conventional studies that we do of, of genetic linkage. Um, what is clear, however, is that genetic predispositions, so such as BRCA or in the context of kidney cancer, the VHL disease, um, what's necessary is an interaction between our genes and the environment. Um, so th that, that's the reason why a lot of these um, predispositions don't really uh, come through in a, in a you know, fully comprehensive way. Um, they need a certain exposure, and there's probably also an element of chance uh, as well of that interaction happening in a manner uh, that then allows the, the cancer to proceed. There's something very curious. Oh, curious. Oh. There's something very curious as well with some of the hereditary genes and the hereditary cancer syndromes where, for example, with the BRCA genes, they increase the risk of breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and prostate cancer in men. But like that gene is faulty in every cell in the body, but it only manifests in certain tissues. So there's some really interesting stuff that we don't really understand about like, you know, and, and the case of like VHL in the kidney or a gene called APC in the colon, it's like, why there? What's going on? So sort of understanding how these genes interact with tissue biology and the environmental exposures, I think is, is really, it's kind of an interesting question. Well, Kat, early, well, on, Kat, early on, you mentioned about normal tissue and we know that um, normal lung, uh, normal esophagus, normal skin, that before you even have a cancer developed, or even before it's even in the pre-invasive stage, if you like, that there is evidence of these genetic abnormalities. There are evidence of different populations of cells that seem to have acquired genetic differences from, say, neighboring cells. So these sorts of things, so we talk about evolution in the context of cancer, but there's evidence of evolution in the context of no cancer and just normal tissue. So there may be something that associates the, um, the tissue of origin or the organ with a certain pathway and gene. And it so happens that once you acquire that abnormality that makes that cell go rogue, there is that association then between that gene and the cancer. And, and we have uh, another audience question. This is from Lorraine. Lorraine would like to know, I've read that we found cancer in the fossil record. How can cancer show up in a fossil imprint or bone? Does it have to be a bone cancer? Oh, can I do this? My specialist, uh, like the first four chapters of my book are all about like cancer across the tree of life and in antiquity. So this this is a big challenge. Basically, there is cancer going back. I think the oldest one uh, I found is a 240 million year old turtle 
fossil with evidence of uh, tumour in, in the bone. So most of the really ancient specimens, the fossils we find, you are looking for things that are in the bone. But it doesn't necessarily have to be a bone tumour per se, so one that started in the bone. Um, just last couple of weeks ago, there was a 77 million-year-old dinosaur fossil with an osteosarcoma, which is a bone tumour. But different types of cancer, they do leave marks in the bone, but they have what's called a, a certain pathonomic. So certain types of leukaemia, they leave certain patterns. Um, cancers that have metastasized have spread into the bones, leave different signatures mm -hmm. compared with tumours that start in the bones. So yeah, if you're talking about fossils, yes, you've got to look for something that's actually in the bones. When you're talking about more recent remains where you can start to look at things like DNA and proteins, you could actually start to find evidence if there are any of those kinds of tissues left of the sorts of mutations of the sorts of like faulty molecules we know are associated with cancer. And basically, pretty much wherever we look in ancient human populations all over the world back through history, we find evidence of all sorts of different types of cancer. But yeah, the really old ones, it's if they're in the bones, you'll see them, which does suggest that like, if you can find them in the bones, it, this was not a rare disease, you know. So um, that cancer has been with us for a very, very long time. It's intrinsically linked to being multicellular animals and like to our evolution as a species. Uh, and it's across pretty much every single branch of the tree of life. So, yeah, it's it's a fascinating and ancient disease from a, a biological and scientific perspective. Active. Well, annoyingly, we haven't got enough time. Obviously, I wanted to ask you all about the naked mole rat because that does always fascinate <laughs> me about that. Uh, so anyone watching this, look it up and you will look up naked mole rat and cancer. You'll find some very interesting things there. Um, I would just, uh, Mary, first of all, the, the Tracer X study, just because we've run out of time, but I, I want to just get a little bit more of a picture of where that's going and uh, and where people can find out more about what is going on with that as well. Okay. Okay. Uh, um, so in 2014, in fact, it was in almost a decade ago that Charlie Swanton, who's at UCL, as well as the Francis Crick, knew that given given the what I mentioned about the, the, the poor progress we've had in research and understanding lung cancer and the, the difficulties in treating these patients who present with advanced disease, if we have a chance to understand how this cancer evolves, we need to study it from the very beginning, early stage, at diagnosis, all the way to relapse, metastatic disease, and actually death. So TracerX opened in 2014, and if you Google it, you'll see it's, a, it's the first study of its kind. Almost 900 patients um, uh, recruited across the UK, 19 centres. We recruited almost over 750 patients. But the idea is patients who present with lung cancer who are operable, so their tumours are removed. And we literally go collect the tumour, we extract DNA, RNA, we look at protein, we look at all... The, the components around the cancer cells, and this is all from fresh tissue. We freeze it in liquid nitrogen, so the DNA quality is, is very good. Um, and then we do the genetic sequencing, and we sequence deeply so that we can read the genetic code and pick up those mutations, so point mutations in the DNA code, but also larger scale genetic abnormalities looking at chromosomes. So bits of chromosomes can, can fall off, can attach, and so on. And, and Kat was talking about Glivec and, and that being the first treatment that actually targeted this, what we call a translocation. So over the, over the years, we've been following patients who've had surgery, and unfortunately, almost 50% of them will go on despite curative surgery and despite treatment in the adjuvant setting after a curative operation will experience a relapse in their disease. 
When the disease comes back, we collect tissue again and we try and understand how has the tissue, the cancer evolved, especially in response to treatment, be it chemotherapy, be it radiotherapy. And then when the cancer progresses, so there is this concept of longitudinal sampling, which is crucial if one wants to understand how a tumour evolves in response to the environment, the treatment that you offer patients, and even just the natural disease course. And we have another study called PEACE, which is a pan-cancer, so all tumour types, research autopsy study. So it might sound a little bit morbid, but actually we can learn an awful lot after death. So these are patients who are willing and wanting, in fact, they've been our biggest supporters and advocates of, of the study, to donate their body. So after they die, we perform a research autopsy and we collect tissue from all the areas where the cancer is spread. So when patients are living and they have metastatic disease, whether it's spread to the brain, the liver, elsewhere, it's unethical, it's immoral, it's often dangerous to stick needles in or operate and remove tissue. But that is a crucial stage at which you want to understand why has the cancer evolved further? Why has the patient developed drug resistance? How has that tumour continued to evolve such that the patient is now in a terminal advanced stage uh, of their disease? So we truly are trying to understand cancer from diagnosis to death. And, and although the idea is that if we can if we can understand and uh, analyze as many tumors as possible, we might start to develop these, this concept of an evolutionary rule book. Or if we see recurrent patterns, recurrent mutations, recurrent signatures, um, and if we can track the dynamics of the cancer in its environment, you might be able to predict how a tumor evolves and you might be able to just get ahead of the next evolutionary step. And it's that that we want to use to design novel treatments and ways in which we can monitor our patients to try and prevent disease progressing. So there's a lot that's coming out of the trace rate study and, and the autopsy study. Uh, and in fact, Samra collaborates with us on the autopsy studies and many of her um, patients have also donated their bodies. So there's an awful lot we can learn by doing autopsies and understanding evolution in, in those terminal stages of disease. Thank you. And Samra, I just wanted to ask you a little bit in terms of, uh, we will obviously, for everyone watching, there will, there will be links on the site where you can go off and find out more. But you were talking a little bit about the, you know, the improvement of, of, of sequencing, of, of, of modelling uh, kidney organoids as well. What, what are the stories, again, as a starting point for people watch, watching this who want to find out more about what is going on? Are there any certain points where you say that this is a good place to go now and find out this story? So um, I think maybe to uh, allude to everything that we've discussed so far um, has had these themes of you know, complexity and diversity and genomic instability. But I guess we should remind ourselves that um, cancer is a special case of evolution. It's not like evolution of species. It's not that sophisticated because it happens over a very short period of time. Um, there is also, uh, uh, no, because it's, it's like an asexually reproducing organism, um, there is no potential to recombine the genetic material. Um, so, for example, some cells, if they acquire certain mutations, that uh, a bit of a dead end, that, well, that's that for them. And I think um, ourselves of these notions um, really gives uh, some uh, credibility to the idea um, that we could uh, predict uh, how cancers could evolve. 
that the number of uh, trajectories that a cancer can take is really not limitless at all, um, and it's rather constrained. And if we look at the the ways that um, the the types of traits that cancers need in order to survive, they're fairly limited. You know, it's a limited repertoire, so they need to, you know, escape um, these sort of cell death mechanisms. They need to be able to grow blood vessels. Um, they need to stimulate blood vessel growth around them so you know, they don't um, become ischemic and infarct. Uh, they need to be able to invade. They need to survive in the in the circulation, and they need to evade the immune system. That's a, that's a, essentially a handful of hallmarks of cancer. And increasingly, what we're appreciating um, is that there is only a certain number of steps um, that can lead to, to um, uh, that kind of uh, outcome and that set of characteristics that a cancer needs. Uh, so uh, we've approached this really with uh, kidney cancer as a model. And the reason why it's such a compelling model um, is that they grow to a very, very large size. So uh, you know, you'll know melanoma is tiny, you know, it, 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 small, the size of a mole normally. Um, a lung cancer or a breast cancer at an early stage might measure two or three centimeters in size. Some of the kidney cancer tumors measure 10, 15, 20 centimeters in size. And what this allows us to see um, is really the dynamic between the populations of cells when you get to huge population size. We're talking sometimes about trillions of cancer cells. So it's very, very many players. Um, and therefore we can see all the sort of evolutionary possibilities that happen. Um, and what's been Really uh, profoundly impressive uh, for me and, and the team working on, on kidney cancer um, is to what degree that the way that these tumors evolve um, really correlates to the way that they behave in the clinic. And I know that I'm putting this in a slightly abstract way, so I'll, I'll give you an example. So we see that the tumors that evolve in a, if you like, a Darwinian fashion, so they evolve slowly, they gradually accumulate more genetic changes, there are lots of different populations of cells evolving in parallel. We see that in patients, they grow over long periods of time. When they metastasize, they metastasize very slowly. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, um, we see these, um, uh, they've been referred to in evolutionary biology as hopeful monsters. Very occasionally, evolution of species will speed up. So normally, it will take um, long periods of time for, for something as small as a color um, of you know, the animal's um, skin or a, uh, you know, the, the, the way that uh, they, they use their um, uh, mobility, it will take a very long period of time for that to, to change. The change is enacted by lots of little genetic changes. But occasionally there is a leap. There is a big genomic change, and that allows... Uh, that species to to transform. And essentially what we've seen in kidney cancer is that this kind of hopeful monster can emerge. Um, and it often emerges through a process of large-scale chromosomal changes rather than these incremental small mutations that we see. Um, and in the patient, that manifests as really rapidly metastasizing cancer. And, and this is the worst problem that we have in the clinic. This is, these are the patients that, um, you know, walk in and three months, down, uh, three months down the line, walk in, they're diagnosed, 
they develop metastatic disease and three months down the line, these patients have diseased, um, even though we've given them multiple lines of treatment. And what we're seeing now is that there is this um, evolutionary trajectory that these, that these tumors take. Um, what we really uh, don't have a window into um, is whether there is any kind of intermediate step uh, that these tumors take or whether they just go for this kind of macroevolutionary leap, if you like. So um, if your audience would like to read more about this, um, we do update our, uh, uh, so there's a sister, sister program, TracerX uh, Renal, which is uh, essentially kidney cancer, uh, and we update that regularly with stories um, from kidney cancer as a model. And of course, ultimately, uh, not, we don't just need to, we can't just learn from patients, uh, we need to develop models in the lab, and this is where we're using uh, kidney cancers that we remove from patients to grow what's called an organoid. Um, and uh, an organoid um, uh, will mimic um, the, the way in which a kidney, um, a kidney would be organized um, in, in a patient. And therefore, when we model this in culture, it gives us a slightly more truthful uh, model of what we see in patients. Uh, but uh, I guess just as a, to, to conclude that, uh, we're seeing the different patterns of evolution, exactly as described in evolutionary biology, really in different clinical behavior. Um, and this gives us hope um, that we might be able to predict what the next step might be. So when we see patients, if we can reconstruct how their tumor has evolved up until that point, we can <clears throat> potentially know where they're heading. That's fantastic. Thank you very That's much. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. Thank you very much uh, to Samra, Mariam, and Kat. Uh, mentioned that, of course, Kat uh, has a new book out, Rebel Cell. Uh, so uh, that I think it's available now. Evolution in the Science of Cancer. Evolution. It's got science everything of life. we've talked about in it, basically, so, and all the evolutionary stuff and new new ideas for therapy. So the whole from start to finish all in here yeah, writing that all book you, uh, writing that book meant you didn't have the time to put the shelves up that a lot of other authors have so they can actually just leave the books there for the whole i time. don't own books uh, i just write uh, them. The, uh, um, so thank you very much everyone for joining i should mention that uh we're back in two weeks time as usual uh and we are doing uh pathogens and antibiotics uh next time so uh talking about genetics and uh genetic understanding uh pathogens and antibiotics so uh, you can get your questions in early you can start sending them now uh, i'm sorry for all the questions questions that we didn't have uh time for thank you very much as usual cosmic shambles the genetic society milner center for evolution at the university of bath also reminded that cat does uh, the genetics unzipped podcast as well and thank you very much to trent burton who is the producer i said you can catch up with all of these they are still available both as audio and video versions uh, go to cosmic shambles you'll find out more there thanks very much and thank you all bye <laughs>